one thing that the confrontation over the Ukraine has done is make people more aware of democratic values, and possibly they should be defending them more. That's writer Margaret Atwood explaining why her single most burning question right now is what's going to happen in Putin's war against Ukraine. I'm Margaret Hoover. This is the Firing Line Podcast. Margaret Atwood, novelist, poet, essayist, has written more than 50 books across six decades, using the power of prose to warn the world about the dangers that lie ahead. If you see a great big hole in the road up ahead and you don't want people to fall into it, you say, there's a great big hole in the road up ahead. So I see a great big hole and I say, don't fall into it. Her 1985 novel, The Handmaid's Tale, has become a classic of dystopian fiction, translated into some 40 languages with more than 8 million copies sold. Whose fault was it, girls? Her Her fault. We talked about the transformation of her novel into a hit drama series, now shooting its fifth season. Atwood serves as a consultant on the series and even had a cameo as one of the enforcers who trains the handmaids to serve as breeders. Her fault. Her fault. Her fault. It's very odd to have your leading lady turn around and say, come on, hit me harder. Atwood's latest book, Burning Questions, tackles issues ranging from climate change to reproductive rights. But let's get to the crux of the matter, which is, does the state own your body? And as the world confronts an uncertain future, the Canadian writer has a stark warning for America. If you've been number one for a long time, you take things for granted. But number one doesn't necessarily stay number one. Maybe, you know, pop awake and have a look at who is trying to weaken you and to whose advantage is it that you should be weak. Margaret Atwood, welcome to Firing Line. And I'm happy to be here with another Margaret. You published your first book of poems, The Circle Game, in 1964, and your first novel, The Edible Woman, in 1969. Now, more than half a century later, and more than a dozen novels later, you have just published Burning Questions, which is a chronology of essays from 2004 to 2021. You address your burning questions on topics ranging from climate change, to the state of democracy. What is the single most burning question that you are asking right now? Well, the single most burning question isn't in the book because it hadn't happened yet. And that would be what's going to happen in the Ukraine. So that is first and foremost in our attention right now. But there's a lot of background playing behind that, uh, which is a, a slower. Uh, crisis evolving. And since everything is connected, let us call that one the climate crisis, which in turn will fuel social unrests, uh, wars, and big migrations of people. So that's what's coming up for us, I'm afraid to say, on planet Earth. But right now, what is going to happen in the Ukraine? You were born in 1939, which was at the start of World War II, and you are now 82 years old. When you began writing your sixth novel, The Handmaid's Tale, in 1984, you lived in West Berlin before the fall of the Berlin Wall. 
and you reference in Burning Questions. Quote, The tone for a novel about a modern totalitarianism was readily available. East German fighter planes broke the sound barrier every Sunday, reminding us by their sonic booms that they could swoop down at any moment. So while you were writing The Handmaid's Tale, you moved to Alabama, where you then finished the manuscript. How did the experience of living in those two very different places influence the plot and its themes? Well, um, not in any completely obvious ways, but as I say, background. So in West Berlin, it was an enclosed uh, part of the city. There was a wall all the way around it. All of those pictures that you have seen of Checkpoint Charlie, that was all still there. You probably saw a movie called The Lives of Others about East Berlin at that time. Uh, I went to East Berlin. It was okay for Canadians to go there. Um, we had to change Western money into East German Deutschmarks, and you couldn't change it back. It's sort of a money grab at the border. And uh, people were very reluctant to, to engage you, of course. Uh, Czechoslovakia, which I also visited at that time, was a little more open. You can talk to people in fields, just not in anything enclosed, such as a car or a room. And Poland was even more open. So in Poland, we were right in the writers' union, a government-controlled uh, thing for writers, and they said, would you like some samizdat? That would be forbidden manuscripts. And we said, sure. And they said, wait just a sec. They were keeping them right there on the premises. So very different degrees of openness, but um, very conscious at all times that you had to be careful about what you said to whom. And you also had to be careful about what you said when you came out, because you could get people in trouble. And that is probably what it is like living in Russia today, although it isn't called communism. So there are many kinds of totalitarianisms. There's, there's no one thing that gives rise to them. Uh, we've got ones of the left, we've got ones of the right. You can even have ones of the kind of center, <laughs> believe it or not. I used to think that was impossible, but it's not. And it just depends on whether there is a small group of people or a kingpin permanently in place and whether dissent is tolerated. So who controls how much of what? In the in the West, we don't we get we get rid of leaders that we don't like by by diselecting them. Uh, in a totalitarianism, either they um, die with their boots on like like Stalin, or somebody removes them. So that's one of the differences. The Handmaid's Tale, for anyone living under a rock, is a dystopian story about a society where fertile women are rare and handmaids are forced to procreate and then hand over their children. Uh, your new book, Burning Questions, reflects on The Handmaid's Tale. And you write, I didn't put anything into this book that hadn't already been done somewhere or could be done given available technology. You're, you're sometimes referred to as a prophet of dystopia, a title that I know you've rejected. But reflect for me on the purpose of the fictional worlds that you've created. 
Okay, so if you don't, if you see a great big hole in the road up ahead and you don't want people to fall into it, you say, there's a great big hole in the road up ahead. If you do want them to fall into it, you either say, there isn't a great big hole in the road up ahead, uh, or you say nothing. So I see great big holes in the road up ahead, and I say, there's a great big hole in the road up ahead. Don't fall into it. That is the purpose of books like that. Uh, But also, uh, because it's about things that have already happened or are happening rather than a distant planet far, far away, um, it it allows you to become more aware of the world around you. Baby stealing. Um, That's happened in a number of, of different countries and times, and it's in the Bible. So it's the Rachel and Leah and the handmaid stories. Some people have said all fertile women. That's not quite the situation in the handmaid's tale. There are econo wives um, lower down the economic scale. So like all things desirable, the upper levels of society get more of them. <laughs> and since fertile women have become very desirable, the upper levels get more of them. They get to have handmaids, but econo, the Econo families do not. So it is a pyramid. Uh, it's very hierarchical, and uh, that is the arrangement. And, and you don't get to be a handmaid just because you're fertile. You get to be a handmaid because you are judged to have committed adultery by getting such things as divorces, because they, are, they used to be actually forbidden. You may not remember that you're too young, but it used to be very, very hard to get divorces because uh, it was thought that the Bible said that you shouldn't have them. So in Gilead, they have reinstated that. You can't get divorces, but you can get handmaids. The Handmaid's Tale, of course, was adopted into an Emmy award-winning series on Hulu, to which you are a consultant and even had a cameo appearance in season one during a scene where the handmaid Janine is testifying about a sexual assault that she experienced. Whose fault was it, girls? Her fault. 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 And why did God allow such a terrible thing to happen? Teach her a lesson. 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 For the uninitiated audience, can you explain what we're seeing with the women in that scene? Oh, we're seeing a blame and shame. <laughs> we're seeing uh, slut shaming, um, bad things that happen to women are their fault. Of course, that doesn't happen anywhere, but in the movies, does it? Uh, so, so, yeah, that's what we're that's what we're seeing, and we're also seeing Elizabeth Moss, who is the central character, initially refusing to do it. And my little cameo, which we had to shoot four times because they said I was not um, hitting her over the head hard enough. It's very odd to have your leading lady turn turn around and say, "Come on." Come on, hit me harder. I said, no, no, I might hurt you. Come on, give me a swipe. Uh, They did add the sound effect. 
Um, so yeah, so that's what we were saying. Compliance and um, group uh, shaming, because in Gilead, everything, including infertility, is the fault of women. You detailed this scene in chapter 13 of your novel. What was it like for you to step into the world that you had created decades ago and to portray one of the enforcers? Well, pretty odd. Let me say that there weren't very many roles for people my age, uh, except among the aunts. Uh, but Anne Dowd is, is pretty brilliant. The Aunt Lydia character. And um, I would say I got a very, very good team. I shouldn't say I got. I was I was lucky enough to find myself with a very dedicated team who were thoroughly into the story. I don't think it was just another job for them, and they were giving it their their everything, and they have continued during COVID to be able to to shoot. So they're currently shooting season five, uh, quite a feat to be able to carry on. You know, after season one, most of what happens in the television series doesn't actually take place in your novel. Do you like that in the series, Alfred, who is the protagonist played by Elizabeth Moss, transforms from a passive person, someone who didn't participate in the protests as the authoritarian state of Gilead was taking over, into somebody who fought the regime from the inside? Yeah, I think in the TV series, she does participate. They've got where she's caught up in it. Anyway, there, there's that scene when they're running away from it. They run into a coffee shop and there's, you know, bullets flying around outside, broken glass. Um, so she is a part of that. But the thing about totalitarianisms, if they're serious, um, if you are visibly resistant there are consequences. And we just saw a whole bunch of people getting arrested in, in Russia for protesting the war in, in Ukraine. And I refer to you, you to an organization of students under Hitler called the White Rose. They all got caught. They ended up on, on meat hooks. So they will kill people. And... Um, it's a, it's a big risk in such a regime to be involved in a resistance movement or to to be uncompliant. So I think in in the television series, the character gets get she has incredible luck. Let's put it that way. And there were people in resistance movements who had incredible luck. It's not out of the question. Um, a number of them survived. They didn't get caught. A number of them did get caught. So, so there's historical precedence for either one. But let us say that Elizabeth Moss in the series has incredible luck. Incredible luck of not getting caught. <laughs> but if she got caught, then that would be the end of the series, wouldn't it? You told the New York Times in 2019 that you, quote, had done some yelling about plot developments that you had disagreed with in the Hulu series. Yeah, a bit. How is the experience as an author of watching your story develop in ways that you don't completely agree with? Well, they didn't do those things. So I basically said, you can't kill Aunt Lydia. They had at that point, I think, stuck a knife into her and shoved her over the stairs. And uh, cliffhanger, we didn't know whether what was going to happen to her. 
So I said, you can't kill Aunt Lydia. And they said, well, we're not going to. We weren't going to anyway. And I said, and hands off that baby. <laughs> so they said, oh, we weren't going to kill the baby. So it's okay. They were not going to kill the baby. What you're saying is you won all those battles. Uh, no, I didn't win them. They, they, they weren't battles, as it turned out, because they had already decided not to do those things. So what is it like? I think we'll just reframe the question a bit. What is it like to let other people play in your sandbox? So if you don't want other people to play in your sandbox, you don't make movie and TV deals. That's just what it is. If, if you're saying, okay, you can develop this. At that point, you don't have any actual control over it. You cannot veto it. You cannot stop it. Uh, you have given a team permission to forge ahead. It's a different art form. There are going to be uh, different ways of handling the story. It's inevitable. I worked in television and film myself in the uh, 70s, and it's it's always a problem. How do you take an inner thought and, and convey it in um, pictures and voice? So do you use voiceover, which they did ultimately decide to do? In the movie, they had used a voiceover, and then they'd taken it out, and I think that was probably a mistake. So how do you show somebody thinking on screen? How do you show what they're really thinking? You can do it with facial expression, but if people have to control their facial expression uh, because it's too dangerous to make a face, <laughs> I see you don't agree with me. Bang. Um, then you have to come up with a way of, of showing that. The program is now filming its fifth season, and apparently another one is coming out after that. The showrunner, Bruce Miller, has said that he knows the ending of the series. Oh, does he? Do you know how it ends? No, <laughs> he hasn't told me. <laughs> I think I'll phone him up after this and say, <laughs> yes, they run a very, very tight ship over there. They have a writer's room. I was allowed into it just to get my picture taken in it with them all, but it's before they had written anything on their whiteboard. So they're very careful about leaks. They don't want it. They don't want a signal. They don't want to. Um, they don't want snippets of information coming out. And they have been very uh, closed room about it. I think all television shows are like that. They don't want it all over them all over the news, what's going to happen next. Well, your novel ends as a complete cliffhanger. You don't know whether Alfred is about to escape the brutal regime or be captured. And so in 2019, 35 years after The Handmaid's Tale, your readers finally got a sequel called The Testaments. And Gilead seems poised to collapse under the weight of its own corruption at the end of The Testaments, is there a message about the sustainability of authoritarian regimes? I think they're hard to sustain in the long run. Um, because either they depend on the force of will of a single individual, like, like Tito in Yugoslavia was holding together these disparate um, elements. And as soon as he died, you got civil war. Um, so it's either it's like that or there is a succession of generations. So first generation true believers, those would be the old Bolsheviks in the USSR. 
They really believed that the that their efforts were going to produce the golden age. So then Stalin gets control, and the Bolsheviks are a problem for him because they believe that the golden age should appear and it's not appearing. So he eliminates them. He has these show trials in the 30s. Then we get an interlude, which is World War II, in which Stalin briefly becomes friendly Uncle Joe. (laughs) Then there's a pivot after the war and he becomes unfriendly Uncle Joe and you get the Cold War. Um, And then you get another generation succeeding. So how are they going to hold it together when they no longer have a charismatic leader totally bent on domination? What's going to happen then? You have a few of them. They they try their hardest, um, but the true believer element is vanishing. Okay, so when you don't have a, a golden uh, city that's going to appear at the end of all of this, and it's just not appearing, a lot of the air goes out of the helium balloon. Same thing happened with the um, American Puritans in the 17th century. It was going to be uh, the city of God. It was going to be a light to all nations. And then that somehow doesn't happen. Whose fault is it? Well, first of all, it was witches. (laughs) Must be because of the witches. Uh, Stalin must be because of traitors from within. So you get these purges, and then nothing is holding it apart. Nothing is holding it together except force, because you no longer have the belief. And that's when they start to fall apart, and that's what's happening in in the Testaments. So true believer Aunt Lydia is no longer a true believer. And there are quite a few precedents for that. As I say, I don't put things in that haven't happened. Why did you choose to end the Testaments on what you've described as a more positive note than one might have expected? Oh, because I'm a soppy optimist. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, that's a little bit too bald. I I think things often happen that way. And and I'm old enough to have seen a number, number of them come and go. Although now we're seeing a number of them come, but possibly we might be about to see a number of them go, because one thing that the confrontation over the Ukraine has done is make people more aware of democratic values, and possibly they should be defending them more. What do you think, even within their own countries? So do you want authoritarian regimes in your own countries, if this is the result. And the Western countries seem to be putting up their hands and saying no, um, but let's see what form that may take. So in order to really represent the free world, you have to have free countries, don't you? Do you think that in the United States, we had taken a respite from feeling like we needed to defend representative democracy and be on guard against authoritarianism? Uh, Yes, I do think you you took a bit of a breather. And uh, I think you got involved in sectarian warfare, which has weakened your country. And I think you need, you know, if you've been number one for a long time, you take things for granted. 
But number one doesn't necessarily stay number one, especially if it's tearing itself apart from within. So then what's, what is the remedy for that? I don't know. <laughs> there are some things I don't know. Uh, but maybe, you know, pop awake and uh, have a look at who is trying to weaken you. And to whose advantage is it that you should be weak? In 1973, the original host of Firing Line, William F. Buckley Jr., welcomed conservative activist Phyllis Schlafly to the program, where she argued against the Equal Rights Amendment. We find, as we look into the matter, that ERA won't give women anything which they haven't already got or have a way of getting. But on the other hand, it will take away from women some of the most important rights and benefits and exemptions we now have. What would be an example of that? Well, a great glaring example on which there's full agreement between both the proponents and the opponents is the matter of the draft. Women are exempt from the draft. Selective service says only young men of age 18 have to register. But the Equal Rights Amendment will positively make women subject to the draft and on an equal basis with men. In an interview with Rolling Stone last year, you referred to Schlafly as having nixed the Equal Rights Amendment. And you named a cafe the Schlafly Cafe in the Testaments. What message were you trying to send your readers? People make... Uh, saints and icons out of out of uh, those in the past with whom they agree. It's what this uproar about statues is about. And you'll notice that um, Aunt Lydia has a statue at the beginning of um, of the Testaments, and we see that statue again later on in the book. No spoilers. Uh, yeah, so so she would be honored by the aunts, and uh, would be considered to have reinforced women's traditional role, which they are all for. Uh, she thought the draft argument was a big um, negative, but there are a number of countries that have women in the military now, big surprise. Uh, and some of them are in the military because they wanted to be in the military. So this is a... Including the United States. Uh, yes, exactly. So my, my secret feeling is that she really wanted because there was a rumor going around that women would have to pee standing up. Um, but that wasn't true. <laughs> One of the major characters in The Handmaid's Tale, Serena Joy, is a former conservative activist and author who advocated for traditional values and then becomes reduced to being a housewife as men take over. There are readers who have speculated that Serena Joy was based on Phyllis Schlafly. No, not, the, not the televangelist side. Um, so Serena Joy is to, is to be a singer on, you know, a, a, an evangelical television program. But since they have banned women from being on television, she isn't anymore. Um, it's, it's a composite of a number of people. But, but what they all have in common is that they thought women should be in the home, but they weren't in the home. They were out there having quite a public career saying that women shouldn't be in, shouldn't be in public. It's it's a bit of a contradiction. At the beginning of the Testaments, you include a quote from George Eliot's novel that reads, every woman is supposed to have the same set of motives or else be a monster. Feminism doesn't have to be monolithic, but some people have wanted it to be, which has made you resist the term feminism. No, I don't resist the term. I just ask people to tell me which kind they're talking about. If you say Christian, 
do you mean Ukrainian Orthodox? Do you mean um, Quakers? Do you mean um, the Pope? Do you mean Episcopalians? Do you mean Baptists? What kind? And uh, which, uh, which political leaning? Because they're right, they're center, and they're left. So you can't say, uh, I am a Christian, and leave it at that. You have to define what kind you're talking about. Same with feminism. I think there are 75 different kinds. So I'm not the kind that thinks um, all male babies should be eliminated except 10% kept for breeding. I'm not that kind. <laughs> I could have guessed. Um, you guessed that. How did you guess that? How intuitive of you. So I support an organization called Equality Now, which works on laws. It's not enough to say the rule of law. There's been some pretty horrible laws. Uh, the rule of just law, the rule of fair law, and it works to make um, the status of women and girls in various countries more equal. So that kind, and I'm a supporter of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and for me, Feminism is a subset of being human. It's there's good and there's bad about that, but but women are human beings, radical though it may seem. Um, that is <laughs> where I begin. The costume that is worn by the handmaids in your novel has become a symbol of subjugation of women and is worn in protest by women around the world. We've seen those costumes on the steps of the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is currently considering a case from Mississippi, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, that could overturn Roe v. Wade, which is the landmark decision protecting women's choice. In 2019, in an interview, you mentioned that you agreed that Roe v. Wade might eventually be overturned, but also predicted a, quote, horrific backlash if that happens. What does a post-Roe v. Wade United States look like? Don't know. Neither do you. Nobody does. We can we can speculate about a, a few things happening, uh, but but let's get to the to the crux of the matter, which is: Does the state own your body? Does the state own your body or anybody else's body? So we were talking about the draft a little bit earlier, and. When you have the draft, the state is claiming to own your body. It's saying you shall be in the army. But if the state makes that claim, it then has to provide your food, your lodging, your clothing, your medical care, and your education, your training. Um, so if they're going to claim women's bodies and put in enforced childbearing, they should pay for that. If the state owns your body, they should pay going to make you have a baby. They should pay for your food, your lodging, your clothing, your medical care, and your training. And if they're not prepared to do that, uh, I would say that it is a dereliction of, of duty of the, of the largest order. The United States already has a rather shocking um, maternal and uh, newborn uh, death uh, rate. How come? How come? 
uh, and you're just going to see that go up. So if you're if you want to own people's bodies, you need to pay for them. I would say to um, people who want to bring in enforced um, enforced baby making, and it's been done. You can go to Charcheska's Romania. He mandated that women of childbearing age had to have four children. You had to take a pregnancy test every month. If you didn't get pregnant, you had to explain why. <laughs> As if anybody can explain that. Uh, and that meant that the orphanages filled up with neglected children and people jumped out the window. So if you're not going to pay for this, you're just going to cause a situation like that. I think some women would like to have more children, but they can't afford it. So give them the money. They probably would if what you want is more babies. In your 2003 novel, Oryx and Crake, it's it's set in the not-so-distant future where New York is underwater because of rising sea levels and New England's climate is semi-tropical. In a 2006 speech entitled Wetlands, you suggested there was still time to combat climate change. And you wrote, quote, the air, the earth, and the water are common good and should be commonly protected. All will benefit if they are, all will suffer if they are not. If we wait too long, it will be too late. End of story. Yeah. That was 16 years ago. I know. Is it too late? You know, you're going to have to ask um, some climate scientists that. You are getting a lot of thinking and inventions that are being put in how to um, into how to mitigate the situation that we are in. There's a website called Project Drawdown, which uh, tells us how to create a situation where carbon will be drawn down out of the atmosphere rather than put into it uh, for a net um, minus zero drawdown effect. And there are all kinds of of new inventions that are coming on stream that will uh, cut energy use, cut uh, carbon emission. And we're putting those together in a project to be launching in September called Practical Utopias, in which people get together in groups online on a platform called Disco. And we will try to put together the material build, you know, what would it look, what would a house that that fulfilled these um, stipulations be like, what it would look like, what would it cost, would it be attractive, because nobody wants to live in a really ugly house, um, and how much uh, carbon would it draw down or prevent. And then we're going to also have to decide on who's going to run this. So what kind of government should such a place have? What are the pluses? What are the minuses? There is no free lunch in any of this. So do you want a monarchy? Do you want an autocracy? Do you want a totalitarianism? Do you want anarcho-syndicalism? Do you want uh, communitarianism? Do you want democracy? What kind? And people are going to have to um, thrash that out. I think we'll have to have some mediators because I'm sure the arguments will be quite heated. Uh, but I'm I'm going in with no preconceived opinions to to see what people can put together if that is their goal. Is I mean it sounds like the assumption is that our systems of government have not 
not authoritarianism nor democracy has been able to tackle the most urgent problems facing the globe. Well, what do you think? <laughs> well, so it so it sounds like the the exercise is is to explore whether there is another alternative, another system. Yeah, or just taking the Lego blocks that we already have and putting them together in a different way. Um, for instance, you can make building blocks out of mushrooms. Did you know that? So interesting. Um, what what can we make houses out of that is not so extremely carbon producing? How can we make them so that they um, so that they work better from that uh, point of view? How much will it cost? Because it does come down to money. And will ordinary people be able to afford these things? How can we make it so that they do? One thing that has happened in the world we find ourselves in is that there's too much money at the top. So how do you horizontalize that? Uh, how do you make it so that, um, sure, if you have a billion dollars, you can make a wonderful uh, carbon neutral house, but what if you don't have a billion dollars uh, like that? So those are the kinds of issues that we're going to be exploring it. We already have a, a a lot of material. We were going to launch right about now. I'm glad we didn't in the middle of, of everything else that's going on. So we're we're launching in September partly because we just got too much input and too much interest. What is your hope? I mean, what do you ultimately hope to achieve out of this eight-week virtual learning experience? Okay. Um possibly some patterns that could be used in real life, and certainly an awareness of the problems that we face. So you will come up with something, you know, how about this wonderful invention? And the next question is going to be, well, how much does it cost? Uh, what kinds of materials does it use? And do you have to import them from somewhere uh, far, far away like that? So we so so people people looking at these will have to look at uh, all of those kinds of factors, and we have some. I don't like to call them experts. I'll say people experienced in those fields coming in to tell us about them. So we have, for instance, fashion is a big contributor to carbon emissions. So we have somebody working on that. And she will come in and say, well, these are some solutions that we propose. And we will look at those. And um, we also have some, some graphic artists who are going to illustrate for us what our ideas might look like. And I think that's going to be pretty, pretty fascinating. From the designed utopias that you're planning, um, you'll be departing or at least stepping away from the reality we live in now. And I'd like to ask you about one aspect of contemporary discourse and the political climate that we live in. Um, you signed an open letter with other writers, including J.K. Rowling, in July of 2020, defending the right to free speech and condemning cancel culture. The letter stated that there is a, quote, new set of moral attitudes and political commitments that tend to weaken our norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favor of ideological conformity. Has the left gone too far trying to cancel certain types of speech? Okay, let's not say just the left. 
oh, I won't. I just start with them and then I go to the right. Yeah. So what's happening right now? Let's just take take snowflakery. Uh, this is going to upset some people. Okay, that is now being hit back across the uh, tennis net um, with a big wave of book banning. That's coming from the right. So maybe they're not calling that cancel culture, but it's the same thing. So any democracy is going to have this problem. In, in a totalitarianism, it isn't a problem because you just shut down any conflicting speech. Uh, but if you have a, um, an, a democracy, which um, in theory anyway, permits open debate, where do you draw the line? And this is going to be an ongoing conversation, uh, but rush to judgment is, is not the answer. I'm, I'm all in favor of, of due diligence, evidence-based policy, okay, and making a distinction between beliefs, no evidence need be required. Uh, if you want to believe the deity is a giant carrot, that's your choice. Uh, there's no evidence that says you're wrong, and there's also no evidence that says you're right. It's a belief. An opinion, which we would hope might be based on, on fact, but is often just based on belief, and, and fact, which is verifiable. Um, that is, you can test it out. You can see whether it's true or not. And with, with any kind of uh, scientific um, statement, you have to look at what question was asked and what was the method of verification. You, you, can't, just, you can't just make a, a, a belief deity out of science and say science says blah. You have to say, okay, what question did science ask and, and how was that verified? Let's see the process. So open, transparent, evidence-based. Uh, let's, let's have some applause for, for truth. There's a real dearth of what you've just described on both the left and the right. There um, was, and, and in, we're coming round. Let me ask you about something you said in Amsterdam in 2018, because you recognize that the right is now trumpeting free speech, but that you you added, the left has foolishly taken the bait thrown out by the right and is busily trying to shut down certain manifestations of speech it doesn't like. Okay, so that was that was 2018, and that was true then. I'm not sure it's so true now. Uh, there is one other thing that is universally true. Any weapon that you devise will be adopted by the other side and used against you. Um, and you can look at you can that look at that across the board. So let us say that the Obama election, first one was was won because they had figured out social media and the right had not. <laughs> But then they did. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? Uh, this this may upset somebody, so we're banning it. <laughs> yeah. So any weapon that you devise will be adopted by the other side if it's an effective weapon, and it will be used against you. So be careful about that. I would say to to people who think they have got the ultimate answer to social media warfare. So if you think it's fair for you to do that to person X, person X is going to shortly do it to you. Well, with that, Margaret Atwood, 
writer of dystopian fiction and self-described soppy optimist. <laughs> thank you for joining me here at Firing Line. And thank you. Thank you.